0: Welcome to our Fireside series where we have a conversation about class action issues in Australia. My name is Christine Tran and I'm a partner in our Disputes practice in Sydney and I'm joined today by Aoife Zerov a senior associate from our Melbourne office and Maxwell Herman, an associate from our New York office. This is episode 10. I can't believe we're here but here we are. Now in our last episode our colleagues Peter, Leah and Harry delved into the myths and misconceptions of class actions in Australia. And today we wanted to pick up an early thread of their conversation and do a compare and contrast between our regime and the US class action regime. And hopefully it'll be the start of a tour of class actions and group litigation around the world that we'll explore in this um, fireside series if, if we keep going with it. So um, in terms of just taking a step back first, why are we starting with the US regime? Well, first of all, it is universally acknowledged that the United States is the birthplace of the modern class action regime. It came into being in 1966, and it was the inspiration for our Australian class action regime. Our parliament had regard to it when introducing class actions in Australia in 1992. So of course, there's gonna be similarities, but also differences, and that's what we're gonna explore today. The second is US continues to be a source of inspiration and information. Our regime is only half the age of the US and the US has always been a barometer for the legal, judicial and market trends that might arise here in Australia. Again, another topic that we will um, explore because we're going to focus on two species of class action in in considering whether or not the US is, is a true barometer And thirdly, what we're starting to observe here in Australia is this increasing relatedness between the class actions in Australia and the US and our clients having to defend multiple class actions in different jurisdictions, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes one after the other. And it can become a really complex picture, particularly when you overlay the different rules of evidence and court procedure and approaches that might be taken in any one given proceeding. So in view of this it seems to be an apt topic for discussion. Um, so Max I might throw it over to you um, in, to provide us with an overview of the US regime, um, US class action regime.
1: Sure, happy to take over and Christine thank you for having me, If as well. Um, so to take a step back the uh, U.S. class action re- regime starts with the federal rules of civil procedure. So it's a uh, it's a procedural regime. It doesn't, or it's not supposed to, create any new substantive rights for the parties or otherwise expand or limit the court's jurisdiction, for example. The, uh, the federal rules of civil procedure set out four basic elements that have to be proven by a plaintiff in each case where that plaintiff seeks to represent a uh, Uh, a class of individuals who are similarly situated. Those four requirements are adequacy, numerosity, commonality, and typicality. Um, Very generally speaking, numerosity fairly obviously is that there's enough individuals to justify the use of a class action mechanism rather than simply adjudicating the issue uh, one by one. The typical touchdown is between 25 and 40, but it really is case uh, specific. Uh, n- adequacy uh, asks whether the proposed lead plaintiff is going to be adequate to represent the class. Uh, for example, in securities litigation, there is um, specific, litigation, uh, specific legislation I put, put in place in the 1990s that requires that the, um, that the lead plaintiff also be the most harmed uh, by the securities, alleged securities fraud. And that's just a mechanism to make sure that that plaintiff is going to have the most impetus to properly represent the class. Commonality is a question of whether the uh, lead plaintiff and the remainder of the proposed class share common questions of law and fact. Um, and typicality is whether the claims of the lead plaintiff would be typical uh, of the rest of the class. For example, that if the lawsuit is about uh, you know, a diet soda, that the lead plaintiff didn't take the uh, the regular rather than the diet um, that caused the alleged injury so those are the four general uh requirements of class actions um it's more sophisticated from there in terms of uh the various requirements but but that's in a, it in a nutshell and they have to be proven by preponderance of the evidence by that plaintiff in order for the class action to be certified and that simply means that however the plaintiff has proposed to define the class that the court has said yes you meet all of the requirements typicality adequacy numerosity and commonality Um, and so therefore you can act as a class representative for your defined class.
0: Thanks Max I mean I think that's a great uh, segue in terms of ending on certification because in Australia we don't have a certification um, mechanism so thematically the structure of our Australian class action regime is informed by two core purposes the first is access to justice, and the second is finality in terms of the issues in dispute and so um stemming from those two core purposes, the thresholds for commencing class actions in Australia are quite low um so like i said no 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 certification regime um you know we don't need to meet any of those things that you've mentioned in terms of you know commonality or um, uh, predominance in terms of the, the issues that are common to the group members predominating over individual issues um, we don't have any real process or procedure around adequacy of representation um, either not to, not to the same extent that you've touched on Max in terms of for example with securities litigation having a lead plaintiff that is the most um, damaged or has largest um, you know, uh largest loss so Instead, what we have, our regime puts the onus onto defendants rather than the court or the plaintiff to get over the certification hurdle. So once the class action is commenced, it's up to the defendant to decide whether or not it's um the, the class action proceeding should continue as a class action um, class action proceeding. So there's certain you know, short lists of bases that um, within the arsenal of the defendant that could be deployed, but it's fairly, fairly weak. So the other similarity is that our regime and like the US regime, it's an opt-out regime. So the idea was pr- to promote access to justice um, in order to provide the defendant for, with finality. And that was to deal with as many of the claims as possible, trying to capture as many of those Um, putative claimants as possible so that it could be one and done so to speak. Now interestingly in Australia this has led to a different issue which is the advent of many open competing class actions sometimes referred to as multiplicity Um, and that's become a phenomenon in the last five to six years and here in Australia courts have come up with a case management framework to select the prevailing class action vehicle um, And just a footnote there before I I, I throw it back to you, Max, to consider the U.S. um, perspective, that framework is currently the subject of um, review by the High Court in a case that's going to hearing on the 10th of November. So, again, there might be some movements, but generally speaking, we do have a multiplicity problem in Australia.
1: That's really interesting. Um, You know, the certification is, is so fundamental to class action litigation in the U.S. In fact, it's generally certification is the major inflection point for a lawsuit and 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 for the most part i think the vast majority of class actions that reach class certification in fact are certified they end up settled because you go from a, a disparate group of individual plaintiffs to one plaintiff potentially in some cases although it's become more difficult in recent years representing a national class of plaintiffs and the risk is so great But frankly, in a lot of cases, it's in the defendant's best interest to settle. Um, As far as multiplicity goes, in general, the courts, um, because the United States is the United States and we have 50 individual state courts and the federal courts in each of the states uh, definitely run in similar issues where you have essentially a race to the courthouse. Uh, you know, a sense of first to file and frequently the first to file is the first class is the class action that ends up moving forward. Um, it's, it's usually dealt with on a case to case basis, you know, whether uh, one case will be stayed so that another case can move forward. And that depends largely on essentially a comedy analysis that's performed by one judge or another in each state who's asked by one of the litigants to stay that litigation so that another litigation can move forward. Um, some factors that they consider include the uh, history of, of the plaintiff's attorney in terms of you know, how skilled they are, how competent, whether they've represented uh, plaintiffs in class action litigation before, as well as, like we were talking about before, uh, the degree to which that um, the proposed lead plaintiff in each case has been harmed. Uh, and again, that still goes back to really typicality and, and, and the adequacy of that plaintiff to represent the class again
0: um, really interesting that there's a um, similarity in the on the multiplicity side of things um, maybe I'm just okay. pivoting slightly because I know that there is a there are differences in the um, in the rules of evidence and uh, other general court process processes so I just want to throw to you Aoife um, you know what what are the uh, I guess the approach to um, evidence in Australia as a starting off point so look I think thanks
2: Christine I think to really um, interesting points of of distinction with US proceedings um, is around the independence of the expert and the process of taking lay evidence in Australian proceedings. So on the independence point this is of course not unusual or specific to to class actions um, but class actions do raise their own specific considerations on this point. Um, So when we're looking for an expert at the beginning of any proceeding here, we're obviously looking for someone who has that specialised expertise based on their study, their training, their experience. And second, and and equally as critical point is, are they familiar with and agreed to be bound by the codes of practice that exist in the particular jurisdiction in which the proceeding has been heard? And just picking the federal court practice note as an example, That just reminds us of the fact that that overriding duty of an expert is to the court. It's not to the party who's engaged them. They're not an advocate for that party. Their job is to provide an objective and independent assessment to assist the court um, to to reach a landing on on the facts and issue in that particular case. In class actions, we're often dealing with very complex issues and sometimes that specialised expertise may not sit within Australia so it requires us to look overseas and this point around the independence of an expert is just critically important when we're dealing with overseas experts or experts who may have given evidence in another context and so it's it's often something that we spend quite a bit of time at the beginning just making sure that those parameters and boundaries are, are very, very clear um, and that Um, the legal practitioners involved as well as the experts have that appreciation that that overriding duties is to the court and and not to the parties in the proceedings. Um, On the lay evidence front, we don't have a a videotaped deposition process like in the US, the process of lay evidence in Australia, with some exceptions, but is typically done through a witness statement. So sitting down with the witness, spending quite a bit of time interviewing them, going through and um, relevant documents. Um, so with the, the lay evidence side of things, it's often really important for us just to ensure that witnesses are aware of those parameters and, and the boundaries. And so in class actions, we're often filing evidence from a number of, of witnesses. Sometimes they know each other quite well or they continue to work together. So ensuring that and they're aware that they should not be speaking to each other about their own evidence or testing their recollection on things another aspect that can often be quite unique to class actions is that the time period can be very very long it can cover um, a long period of time and it's um, important again for witnesses just to know that um, it, the evidence should be theirs it's not appropriate for them to sort of test the recollection with other people um, so look Max, I know some of that will sound a little bit unusual or at least different to you. So maybe are you happy to speak to some of those procedural aspects in the US proceedings and and how they play out there?
1: Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, experts are also a a significant aspect of class action practice and and particularly coming coming back to certification. You know, how, how do you prove by a preponderance of the evidence that you, the class representative meet all of those requirements of rule 23 and so you have experts testifying and uh, and putting in reports on on various issues whether it's toxicology or epidemiology or or you have a a real estate appraiser who's a uh, testifying as to how groundwater pollution has affected everybody in the area equally such that everyone has a common issue of fact and or has been harmed in the same or similar way Um, Of course the the big distinction there as you're no doubt aware is um the experts in the united states are expected to testify uh, truthfully and and to um, be advocates uh, for the evidence nevertheless they are retained by the parties um it's no uh, it's no secret that they are are hired by the you know plaintiffs and by the defendants um to testify on on their behalf and and so uh, they're not necessarily um, a- advocates for the court, uh, as you'd see in, in the Australian class action regime. More generally, uh, in, in terms of lay evidence, uh, although it's not supposed to air into substantive issues, discovery into certification no, no doubt gets there. and. Uh, and you have the, a wide array of discovery in terms of uh, document productions and, and depositions taken um, that you introduce as evidence since board of certification. And if you get beyond certification and it doesn't sell right away, you'll have summary judgment where the parties have an opportunity to submit all of the evidence to the court and, and seek a ruling before trial or, in fact, uh, take the issue to trial. And, and the beauty of the class action regime, of course, is that you have a single trial that can adjudicate um, the issue on behalf of uh, everyone falling in within that class and um, so it, if I may point out one, one other thing that I think is interesting as I was looking at um, the Australian class action regime is so you have the uh, automatic fee shifting as I understand and please correct me if I'm wrong uh, whereas in the US we have the American rule where we don't have fee shifting and so an individual plaintiff and the plaintiff rather than the plaintiff attorneys, the, the class rep, um, you know, they, they don't bear the same type of risk that they would in a, another uh, jurisdiction where there is that fee shifting. And, and I thought that was an interesting how that might um, affect the dynamics of the litigation. I, I don't know, um, Christine or Aifa, if that's something you could speak to.
0: Yeah, that's very right, uh, Max. So we do have a loser pays rules. And that cost regime is meant to um, it's been heralded in our class action regime as something that um, gives plaintiffs cause to pause before they commence proceedings so um, it's meant to uh, often thought of as offsetting the fact that we have a generally low threshold for commencing proceedings in Australia class action proceedings in Australia.
2: We do often see as well in class actions that an indemnity may be provided by the plaintiff law firm in terms of indemnifying the plaintiff for any costs they may incur. And so that's also an important feature of how it plays out in practice.
0: And how about, so how do, how do these things apply in terms of what you're seeing um, in the products space, so product liability, class actions, Max? Because like I think in Australia, often the products cases that we see here um, piggyback off products litigation in the US. So I'd be keen to hear from you on, on that particular point.
1: Yeah, you know, products litigation in class action has become more and more difficult, I think, over the last 10 decades for plaintiffs. And that's not to say that lawsuits still aren't being filed. In fact, I think we're seeing an uptick, at least in the last five years, in filings. Um, uh, the plaintiff's bar has been incredibly creative in, in trying to get around um, what seem like fairly significant roadblocks that have been put in place, for example. By the Supreme Court. I mean, you have at the beginning of the decade the BMS decision where the court ruled that you, uh, you know, a a, a a plaintiff, um, a plaintiff, one plaintiff can't piggyback on the personal jurisdiction of another plaintiff, meaning that if you have one plaintiff whose claim provides a basis for personal jurisdiction over a defendant, that doesn't necessarily mean uh if the defendant is not a resident of the forum that another plaintiff in that same litigation can exercise can uh, allege a claim over which the court can exercise jurisdiction um what that means in practice is that theoretically uh a class action on a nationwide basis can't be prosecuted unless it's filed in the defendant's uh home state because inevitably you are going to have plaintiffs who reside in a different state other than the forum were harmed by uh, a product outside of that forum and in fact have no relationship ship to that forum whatsoever um nevertheless we've seen disparate rulings over the last um, several years and I, and I suspect that that's going to come to a head again um fairly soon um you know m- more generally you, you have issues with uh the commonality of a products liability class because you have personal injury plaintiffs and they've been harmed in uh, a variety of different ways. And it's hard to say that, therefore, common issues predominate um, over disparate issues. Uh, nevertheless, we're seeing uh, lawsuits filed alleging medical monitoring, i.e., that everybody in the class has been exposed to um, some toxin, for example, and therefore. Um, They're all entitled to the same degree of medical monitoring to ensure that they catch some kind of um, disease as early as possible, Um, as well as other uses of other devices in place of class action altogether. So, For example, what we've seen is municipalities using the public nuisance common law claim uh, to essentially put entire industries on trial. alleging basically that for example in taking opiates as an example um, the industry the pharmaceutical industry wrongfully promoted opioids and therefore the municipalities can hold the industry uh, responsible for the effects of opioid use um, addiction and overdose uh, within the county's bounds Um, so, so essentially what they've done is You have a municipality replacing a class, uh, but filing a lawsuit on the same issue. Otherwise, an individual personal injury um, plaintiff on behalf of a class would have a lot of difficulty prosecuting.
2: And I think in Australia we're seeing lots of examples of mass or product liability claims being issued here, which effectively replicate um, proceedings that have been issued in the US. And that's happening in a wide variety of, of industries. Um, really as varied as automotives right through to to pharmaceuticals. Um, An Australian plaintiff doesn't encounter that certification issue that's cropped up quite a bit in today's discussion and it's an important one in this context in product liability claims. So in Australia, uh, an Australian plaintiff can typically get a product liability claim off the brand relatively easily without that certification requirement it's not to say of course that issues don't then don't arise further into the proceeding in terms of commonality and the extent to which that lead plaintiff may be representative of the the group obviously various factors will sort of influence that including the the product in question as well as the characteristics of that particular uh, plaintiff so as max has said this is a vibrant and dynamic area in the us and we expect to see growth in this area in australia Um, we Let's look at those jury awards in the US. They're high profile, they grab a lot of attention. They're typically relating to a product that is sold globally and manufactured by a household name. And they grab public attention, plaintiff lawyers' attention, and at least prompt an investigation here into the viability of a class action in an Australian context. We're also looking at um, how COVID may impact this area, particularly as some of those supply chain pressures have um, caused uh, the suppliers to look at alternative routes as well as potentially substitutable products. So we're expecting to see some movement um, related to that space as well. And we've seen the introduction of contingency fees in Victoria. And with that, we expect to see an impact on the types of claims that may be brought in that jurisdiction, and particularly in, in areas where funders may have been a little bit reticent in the past. Um, interested in in your thoughts Christine and Max in terms of that shareholder class action space and some of those trends that you're seeing and, and what you expect to see over the next little while.
0: Thanks Aoife, I might start off because I want to pick up um, something that Max uh, mentioned about that um, case and the you know, per- per- piggybacking of personal jurisdiction and the class action that's really really fascinating because um, what we're starting to see here in Australia is a lot of foreign securities that have been pulled into the Australian um, shareholder class action so Um, It's not just limited to shareholders who purchased shares in a listed, um, an entity listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, but it could be listed on a foreign stock exchange. It could also be um, investors in um, ADRs. So typically we will see the ADR litigation occur in the US, but those group members are, you know, at least they're trying to pull those group members into the Australian Class Action um, regime and there's currently a judgment reserved on that question whether or not uh, a court in Australia has a jurisdiction to deal with the claims of those um, uh, you know, other shareholders and other listed entities. So can they piggyback off um, a shareholder who purchased a share on the Australian stock exchange? So it's, it's very, very apt um, in terms of <laughs> interconnection between the two, two regimes and, and species of litigation so I guess that's thing one. Um, thing two, we've got a, you know, in terms of latest development, um, obviously last week we had the first um, dismissal of a shareholder class action in Australia. Um, that was in a case called Crowley and Worley. Um, and it's a significant landmark decision for corporate Australia. So predominantly, um, you know, this very popular species of litigation in Australia, shareholder class actions, have tended to settle or Um, otherwise, you know, uh, dismissed at a very early stage. Very few of them have gone to trial. Very few still have gone to judgment. So this Wally judgment is the second judgment in Australia. there has been completing and conflicting commentary regarding the impact of this this decision. Um, But certainly, I think firsts are always worthy of attention. I think that we might park the implications for another, another fireside chat. But it certainly has buoyed the um, DNO market in Australia. So, again, touching on your point that um, you know, about costs, you know, the loser pays rules in Australia, we have a very vibrant litigation, third-party litigation funding market because of the loser pays rules, um, just to, I guess, um, provide that cost immunity to the plaintiff that um, the plaintiff otherwise doesn't get in Australia. And that market's under extreme pressure from the level of shareholder class action activity in Australia. So that's a couple of like in terms of uh, scene setting comments about securities class actions in Australia. Um, I'll be interested to hear what's happening in the U.S. because it's it's an incredibly vibrant market over there in that regard.
1: Yeah, it is. And and just to touch on a point that you just made about litigation funding. I mean, I mean, I think actually Australia is a little ahead of the U.S. in terms of the use of litigation funding, but it's certainly a massive growth area for us as well. Um, in fact, I think that IMF Bentham, which was, which is a, a, an Australian firm, has has merged and is now rebranded as Omni Bridgeway, and is very much a prominent uh, funder in the United States. And um, and and certainly, uh, you'd think that you can attribute uh, what we're seeing recently in securities class actions, at least in part, to the advent and uh, growth of litigation funding. Uh, So, you know, in the securities class action space right now, I think recently we've seen a fairly significant uptick in the number of filings. Um, I think uh, last year we had about 400 uh, or so securities class action filings on the federal level, uh, about the same the two years before that. And I think that that is the highest total per year. Uh, you have to go back to like the mid 90s, maybe 1994 to see another year where you're having 300, 400, 400 plus filings in a year. So we're we're definitely seeing significant uptick. And you know, other than litigation funding, what the causes of that, you know, in, inflation, not entirely clear. Um, we haven't necessarily seen uh, in loss inflation across the securities class action industry, meaning we haven 't seen a significant uptick in say settlement amounts, nevertheless, we have seen at least a small increase, and there is a typical lag with this litigation right so your' fifty percent or more of these cases um, they're not going to come to resolution uh, within two, three, or four years of being filing They can, they can take quite a while to prosecute. Um, So to the extent there are inflationary factors working on the securities class action industry, we wouldn't necessarily see the impacts on settlement amounts until a couple of years later. So it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years whether there's inflation in in settlement amounts in addition to inflation in the number of filings.
0: Thanks, Max. Yeah, I think it's really hard to predict securities class action Uh, class action trends other than we know it's very popular with the class action promoters it seems in both the Australia and the US jurisdiction. In terms of Australia there's a couple of other X factors that we're waiting to see play out. The first is um, the availability of common fund orders at the end of the proceedings. So this is where a litigation funder can apply to the court um, to impose a percentage commission across all of the group members without needing to individually contract with them. And that's been heard on Tuesday, actually, by two intermediate courts and two separate proceedings in the federal jurisdiction and the New South Wales Court of Appeal um, hearing that very question. So it'll be interesting to see how that's going to be decided. I think everyone's going to watch with interest. Um, The second X factor that we have in Australia is um, due to COVID, there's been a slight change in our continuous disclosure regime. So the obligation hasn't changed in terms of the need to disclose material information in a timely way. However, the liability um, threshold has. So instead of an objective standard, we now have a a standard of recklessness and negligence. And so it's, again, some conflicting commentary about um, what that, the real import of all that is. Um, But it's early days, no um, class actions, or shareholder class actions have been commenced under that new Um, continuous disclosure um, laws, so we don't know how that's going to impact things. Um, I think our House view is that it's probably going to have a very minimal impact from a pleading perspective and therefore the propensity for these um, claims to be commenced, but we'll just have to watch and see. Anyway, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, so thank you to Aoife and max for um for joining. and And Max, it's really late at your end. so thank you so much. um and thank you to everyone else for listening.